0: I think at the very beginning of a reflection of global Anglicanism would be the fact that it is not a conjecture that the dividing wall of hostility would be broken down, but we are actually in a church where it has been, and that is something to, to rejoice.
1: Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Great, Great. Nick. Yeah, thanks. You guys are in the full swing of classes, et cetera, right, Matt? You got three podcasts a week, four Bible studies. How's it going over there in in Binghamton?
2: We haven't quite started our fall program oh, okay. yet. We're still in the slow summer stuff, but uh, it's going good. We have we've gotten we've got a lot of a lot more young families in over the last year, so our Sunday school is going to be super crowded, which is exciting. Um, I was
1: reliably told that young people did not like doctrinaire <laughs> you um, that's what I was told. They don't like you, man. <laughs>
0: that's what I haven't actually. I, that's a direct quote. Young <laughs> people do not like. And I said, "Well, I don't think that's true, but you know, clearly it's
2: so. preaching all weeks, all all summer. So maybe that's it. As soon as I I get up to the pulpit, that'll be it. will Be done. I'll be gone.
1: No, but I think it's well, at it's least worth hour saying hour that young people in this respect, I think, are just like any people, which are looking for something to believe in rather than nothing. Sure. Contrary to what you hear in popular culture." <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's always surprising when people say that, because I want to look, you know, I mean, particularly within the context within which we were serving, you know, you look at the churches that were bending over backwards to try to get the quote unquote or to get the young people. And they were having much less success than I mean, not that it's about necessarily about numbers, but it just didn't. It seemed patently false that supposedly embracing kind of the spirit of the age would be a guarantee for young people. Um uh, and in fact, the the exact opposite seemed to be the case. I mean, particularly when we were in Louisville, you know, we kept going to, um, kept g- hearing these uh, reports from Southern Seminary, you know, graduating the the now largest graduating seminary class in the history of recorded, you know, seminaries or whatever, like each and every year. In a Since
1: season. cuneiform was that's right chiseled on tablets,
0: yeah. But that's great, Matt. Well, I'm excited for y'all's fall. That's what what's bringing people to Binghamton,
2: I mean, other than I, everything. I, well, the school is is growing um the the university of binghamton is is growing by leaps and bounds and that's really a lot of what has brought some new growth to the to the area we also have like a lot of aerospace companies are based here so we, we get a lot of engineers in and so that also brings service people in so you got you know we're, we're growing for the first time in years binghamton has not grown for the 20 years i've been here but today we're we're growing for some. well
1: reason. i heard you have a killer planet fitness too
2: Oh yeah. It's awesome. We have a good, we have a good, a good kind of fitness. Um, I never liked going to gyms, man, but it's so much, it's much better now that I'm old and I can't like, I can't, my back hurts so bad that I actually need the machines and I can't just do free weights like I used to. So it's, it's great. I could just see you
0: carrying your gallon jug of water around, <laughs> um, chalking up your hands with a little chalk bag. I see that. I got you, got you pegged by Kennedy. <laughs>
1: Well, we thought today we'd talk about the Archbishop's summer essay challenge, not the challenge itself, but the question that he posed. Um, The ACNA website writes that in April 2023, 1,300 Anglicans, including the three of us, it doesn't actually reference the three of us on the ACNA website, although perhaps it should. 1,300 Anglicans from around the world gathered in Kigali, Rwanda at the Global Anglican Future Conference to chart a new course for global Anglicanism. The final conference statement, the Kigali Commitment, calls for, quote, "...resetting the Anglican Communion on the foundation of biblical authority and classic Anglican principles of doctrine, discipline, and worship, as articulated in the Jerusalem Declaration." Now, they're asking for an essay of no more than 2,500 words. Please address, the Archbishop asks, in your appropriate category, either priest, deacon, or layperson, the following question. If you are a priest or deacon, you have been chosen or been tasked to preach on the topic, what does it mean to be a global Anglican today? Choose a biblical text or texts and write the sermon. So, gentlemen, what does it mean to be a global Anglican today?
2: Well, I mean, I, th- I think I, I like the idea of using GAFCON as a launch, a launching point because I think what what happened to GAFCON is, and what well, we'll see if it plays out as we hope. But what we hope happened to GAFCON is that the, this Anglicanism, Anglicanism, is no longer bound and tied to the Church of England and and Canterbury in particular, and that's that's the way it should be because the weight of Anglican Christianity the bulk of it, the, the the life of it actually has shifted southward. And and it's it's and that's not just Anglicans too. That I think Christianity in general is is seeing that kind of shift from northwest to to global global south as far as importance goes. And with that shift, I mean since you're since you're moving out of a, a tradition that's grounded in a, a location with its own national traditions and and ways of being I think that actually makes it more possible for Anglicanism to to actually be grounded in doctrine and discipline and and those things because 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 when you're uh, the Church of England and Canterbury in particular, there's there's so much history and there's so much uh, political power there and, and so much diplomatic experience there that has for for years maybe decades centuries. Prevented anyone from doing anything beyond what Canterbury wants it to do, and in, in the way that Canterbury wants it to get done. So now that's broken. Now that that chain is broken, we actually have an opportunity, like, 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 like we said, is to actually reset the communion based on biblical truth, which is which would be an amazing thing. We can we can take the good heritage we receive from the Church of England to the good uh, the liturgy, the the, the, the traditions. And and make them transcendent, so they're not just uh, they're, they don't just tie us to what is now an apostate church and a, and a dead carcass of of uh, an English an England that was once but is no more. Hmm. Yeah, I think
0: that's well said. I mean, I think you know the, you're you're right to note that the importance of beginning with Kigali. I do hope that both those present and those who are represented will continue to flesh that out you know flesh out that commitment um practical ways on the ground you know various dioceses you know I hope bishops particularly ones that weren't there um you know be interesting to see how this how this is implemented but at the very least you uh, you're certainly correct in saying that the, the global Anglican will now be defined primarily by adherence to biblical doctrine and practice as opposed to ethnicity of any type, you know, and I think, you know, be more than happy for the Church of England to not only experience, well, to repent and turn, but also then experience revival would be great to have, you know, the, the number of on the rolls in England actually be going to church there. I mean, that would be a, a wonderful uh, victory. Um, but even if it were the case then, I still think that going back to a Canterbury-centric communion just doesn't, not only doesn't make any sense, but it's, it's not as, um, well, I think it's, we'll, we'll never go back to that uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, so, you know, I think being a global Anglican at the very least is recognizing that, that we are transcultural, you know, that, they, that there's not a, a province defined by ethnicity, although there are national provinces, and that the the true body of Christ represented by um, the sort of breaking down of these otherwise d- dramatic um, cultural, ethnic and national differences is transcended in the church. And so I think the very, you know, I mean, I, I love the one of the, my favorite pictures from our time in kigali was the trinity school for ministry um representation there that was was from every corner of the globe with gloves don't have corners every 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 corner <laughs> of the corner map of the earth. that's right every corner <laughs> of a map and i i haven't had the heart or the desire at all to take it down because every time i i look at it and i'm so i'm so heartened by it you know it's just because because i was explaining to someone that today that if you've experienced something like that, then you know that a lot of this frankly, demonic attempts to divide people, uh, you know, along these very, um, you know, easily sinfully divided lines like skin color and ethnicity and culture and national origin is actually not only able to be transcended, but is transcended. And when you have that type of uh, or in the church, um, you know, in the gospel believing Bible suffused church. And so I think at the very beginning of a reflection on global Anglicanism would be the fact that it is not a conjecture that the dividing wall of hostility would be broken down, but we are actually in a church where it has been. And that is something to,
1: to rejoice. When I first read this question, I had a very negative reaction to the idea of preaching a sermon on what does it mean to be a global Anglican today? I had thought I would never preach such a sermon. I think that the purpose of a sermon is to proclaim the gospel to the gathered people of God, to remind them that they are great sinners, and then to introduce them either for the first time or once again to their savior, Jesus Christ. But then I thought, well, you could get there from what it means to be a global Anglican, because that those are the very principles, the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that have been lost by what was once the center of global Anglicanism that has now the the anglican principles of doctrine discipline and worship are founded on those great two words of god which are the foundation of a sermon you might not walk away from a sermon that any of the three of us would preach thinking that it was a sermon about what it meant to be a global anglican but in the proclamation of the gospel you could actually you could absolutely tell people the story of what had been lost and what has been recovered in what it now means to be a global Anglican as opposed to what it used to mean. That's
2: absolutely true. I mean I I think one of the things that has always been frustrating to those of us on the on the orthodox side of the sexuality question is the the attraction, the uh the need on the part of some and the and the, the, the theological justification on the part of some for for favoring this kind of England centered, England centered communion. So, when there there are some Orthodox people who are still in the Episcopal Church and who are still um, in the Church of England, but some of them have, have so favored the historic importance of the See of Canterbury as almost like uh, maybe Rome or or Constantinople or Alexandria, the four historic uh, historic sees of the Church. Canterbury stands in their minds like right there with those with those historic seas so so we have whatever 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 bad steps missteps canterbury takes you know the most important thing is to remain in unity with with canterbury and there are people who have who are genuine christians people who know know and believe their bibles who are against the sexuality stuff but who still have that as their priority like we can't we can't possibly break And and if that's your priority and I, under, I understand that within certain circles of Anglo-Catholicism, that's kind of the, the thought. But if that's your priority, you're never – you are never going to reform that church because your primary worry is going to be to maintain – is to maintain this kind of – this connection and this in this communion. And that's going to make – that's going to force you to make compromise after compromise after compromise. And the best – so the best thing that could have ever happened to Anglican, Anglican – Anglicanism worldwide is to break – to just break that chain. That's right. And, and I'm, I'm hoping my friends who are still in the Episcopal Church, my friends who are still in the Church of England, will, will see that this is this notion of a place of apostolic, and I believe in apostolic succession, but this, this knowledge of this apostolic see or this this, this historic see that is the defining feature of Anglicanism has done more damage over the years uh, than anything than many other things, right. um, just in the force it has in, in people's minds and hearts.
0: Well, I think, and you know, to be honest, that always that that argument always rang so hollow to me, even when given by an Anglo-Catholic, because you know the thing begging the question is, well, why aren't you actually a Roman Catholic or at least Orthodox if you really want to? You want to believe so much that the unity of the Church trumps doctrine. Well, then, um, you know, uh, if I were Roman Catholic, I would be rolling my eyes even harder than I am now um, while you're telling me this. But you know, I mean, it, it's. It really rings hollow because it's it's so clearly a varnish for not wanting to, one, upset the status quo, and two, get at odds with prevailing culture in any sort of um, uh, dramatic way, you know, because there is still is, particularly in the South, I can say, I mean, having spent most of my life there, um, some cachet with being connected to, you know, being the rector of the Cardinal Episcopal Parish um, is still a um, a thing, you know, I mean, it may not be from some other places, but I think... I agree with you entirely about that, Matt, that the this sort of appeal to the unbroken church uh, from Protestants of all people is um it's really quite laughable. And so uh, to be a global Anglican now uh, is to recognize that, like we said before, that the practice and doctrine um is what the unity is found in truth. And that's that's what we're going to celebrate
1: when we were in Kigali, the sermons that we heard, were centered on texts from Paul's epistle to the Colossians, which has to do with the other options to find peace in this world and how far short of that peace, seeking out those options will leave you that in fact, the only peace and salvation that we have access to is in Christ Jesus. What? are some biblical texts you guys might turn to if tasked to preach including the idea of being a global Anglican
2: I mean I think I might turn to uh, Matthew 15 or Mark 7 and talk about how sometimes uh, human traditions which are which are very good not not necessarily none human tra- tradition isn't necessarily bad there's some very good ones mm. in the church we were Anglicans obviously we believe that believe that but in Mark chapter 7, uh, you have uh, Jesus dealing with some, some of the ways that Pharisaic tradition had had served not a good purpose, how it had, how it had been built on top of, of the law in such a way that it actually led to a contradiction of the law, and it actually, actually obscured uh, the traditions of, the, of the, the Pharisees, the traditions of the elders, actually obscured the law so that you could follow these traditions and believe yourself to be righteous. Uh, you know, if you if you washed your dishes on the outside, and you washed your hands in the right way, and you uh, took the pre- prerequisite number of steps in the Sabbath day, then hey, you're righteous. You're you're a, you're a lawkeeper. You don't have to you don't have to actually ask yourself, "Is my heart clean? Is my is my is am I walking in a way that am I thinking in a way that the Lord be pleased with? And so you never, never being confronted with the law, you never confront with your own sin, you never confront with the, the need for salvation and the cross. So that's what Jesus was upset about in Mark 7, chapter seven. And he said, Hey, look, your your traditions are, are, you've, you've favored them, you've set them above the scriptures. And because you've done that, you are blind you so so the what you do in the outside he says you, this, what you eat for example you go, go down in your body and come out the other end. Um, <laughs> but 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 that doesn't make you unclean what makes you unclean is what comes out of your out of your heart you, you don't you don't you don't see that and so i think there's a parallel here with what's going on in the, in the communion because of all i think some of our anglican traditions over the past you know built up over centuries um have actually served to obscure the gospel obscure the law um, and so they need to be broken. The, the, the dependence on Canterbury is one of them which just, that just had that just had to go because it was leading us into disobedience. It would have led us into um, into a place where we were actually contradicting the law and not here, as you said earlier, uh, not able to grasp and understand the gospel. And it's a hard thing, you know because I mean, I, right now we're're in we're in, my, in Good Shepherd we're preaching through Acts. and it was it's just a revolutionary thing for Peter, for example, to get into his head, okay, I can go to Cornelius's house centurion and i can stay under his roof and i don't i even though he eats unclean things and he's he's a a gentile he's now my brother and and everything that kept me from thinking that way before has been fulfilled by christ and so it's no longer i it it must have been a revolutionary day in peter's mind when he walked into cornelius's house preached the gospel and the holy spirit descended on Cornelius in his household, and I think that's kind of what's going on right now with with the with the, the shift from Canterbury-bound communion to worldwide communion. Uh, of course, I wouldn't want to liken it to, you know, Pentecost or to uh, some great thing like that. But, it, but it, there's a parallel here, I think, in, in 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 what's happened.
1: And the amazing irony of that text, or one of them, is that in their efforts to add rules in order to quote-unquote keep the law, what's actually happening is that the standard of the law is being lowered to a level that you can actually tell yourself you're keeping. And so like that rich young man, you can say to Jesus, I've been keeping the law since I was a child. And very much like Anglicanism in the West has said, well, we're we're keeping all these laws, so we're going to move on to things like Global sustainability and X, Y, and Z, all these other things, because of course we're already law keepers, totally obscuring the fact that this has reduced the actual standard of God's Almighty and Holy Law, which is why they don't feel the need to call out for a Savior. So, recentering global Anglicanism on the Bible raises the bar of the law back up to where it ought to be judging everyone and driving all of us to our knees and calling out for that savior that's right constraining everything under sin I
0: mean, mm-hmm. that's what paul says the um scriptures
1: yeah i think um well i
0: think those were both preached really well you know i was thinking i might uh, begin with a question of what where and how true unity is to be found And look at Jesus' high priestly prayer, Mm -hmm. you know, where he talks about sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth that you sent me into the world. So if I sent them into the world and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth, he says in 17 through 19. But of course, you know, the entire context of the prayer is um, the preparation for what they were going to face after his death and resurrection. And, you know, there's a wealth of theological points in there, but among them is that they would be unified in the truth of who he is and then subsequently his word. And of course, you see that refrain all throughout the epistles, you know, that the uh, beware of false teachers, beware of um, the appeal of mute idols, beware of the um infiltration you know all the things that Jesus prayed to be aware of they obviously um not only heard but then realized in their own lives and ministries um, throughout the extent of their earthly lives because you see echoes of all the things Jesus warned them about or prayed for uh, defense and protection against uh things that they would then subsequently warning their congregants about in their various churches and letters and so i think you know talking about how what global anglicanism is with respect to this passage is that it has the experiment that was bound to fail uh that somehow uh truth could be uh, minimized for the sake of unity well that that was attempted and has proven to be um just as predicted a, a
1: monumental colossal failure yeah. unified uh, in your belief in nothing just leads to <laughs> scattering and death
0: <laughs> well in your sort of shared sense of uh importance and sophistication you know it can only get you so far um that's what we see happening around the world is that there's a there's a a group of, of Christians and this isn't just Anglican, you know, but there's there's quote unquote Christians who have decided that, you know, friendship with the world is not enmity with God, as Jesus says, you know, and in fact, friendship with the world is is next to godliness. And that is in every denomination. And we're watching it um, on full display. And, you know, and it happens to be. In the West, at least, quite seductive for Anglicans, precisely because there's such richness and beauty to the tradition that we get to. We are the recipients of. Our church is the one that built, you know, the cathedrals. These beautiful cathedrals all over Europe. You know, our church is the one that shaped the English language. You know, our church is the one that has the hymnody, has the has the pomp and circumstance. I mean, the you know, more people watch the Queen's funeral than any other. Um, you know, funeral in the history of the world, and that was ours. So, I mean, I I, have, I get it. I have I have been lured by the flesh spots. I have uh, fallen into them, thankfully not up over my head. But I understand all that. And yet, to be a global Anglican is, Anglican is to it's to acknowledge that that is in a draw, and to have have rejected it, or at least have have put it into its proper perspective. Because you look around, you know, I was so moved by those people in Kigali that, you know, for materially speaking, are, um, you know, quite at a different socioeconomic level than just even an average American. Many of them are. And for them to turn their backs on the monies that would come from the Episcopal Church or the Church of England um, through all sorts of very needed enterprises, you know, clean water initiatives and uh, infrastructure and everything. But to to imperil that on account of this understanding of the importance of the truth of the word of God was, um, well, that's just something that I'll never forget being a part of and has has continued to resonate with me from halfway around the world in a way that I, I don't think I'll ever forget.
2: Yeah. Another aspect of this is uh, maybe the reality of the body of Christ and its and its its impartiality. It's it's um, it's universal, not appeal but inclusion, I guess. And I'm I, I was hesitating because I don't want to use, use those words, but because mm. um, inclusion is has been so so corrupted that word. But you know, it's it's one thing. You know, I think I think we in in 21st century America. England, you know, I don't think anyone has a problem with any Caucasian person has a problem or uh, with submitting to an African-American in authority or to an Asian-American in authority or to a, uh, a Mexican-American in authority. What's unique about GAFCON is is that it's not just African-Americans or Asian-Americans or Chinese-Americans or whatever who are in charge of, of various ministries. These are actually Africans, right? So the culture is very different. The cultural leap from you know, being into New York to Kigali Rwanda, is massive. And as far as GAFCON goes, and my orders go, uh, the Archbishop of Rwanda is is my spiritual father, um, or one of them. He's over, he's he's over all, all of our all of us in the sense that he's the, the the chair of GAFCON, and that's a huge thing. I mean, I I, I I know that we say, of course, that the, the, the church has to be made up of people from all all nations and peoples because that's where the gospel goes. But actually seeing that in flesh, I think it's another kind of new thing that the West is having is gonna have to get used to because we haven't had we have, there's not there's not too many spheres in which Western Christians are actually under the authority, not of Americans who are not. European, but of actually people of different skin color, but also very different culture, and and that's that's a that's a big clash, uh, and yet it's working. I mean, we uh, we have we have to see. Okay, well, this this is the, the, this is my brother, who's also my spiritual father, and um, I can I can submit to this person, and we're going to have some you know misunderstandings <laughs> because our cultures are so different, but we have Christ and we have the gospel
1: you brought up Cornelius before and that's such a i mean that text would preach too here because those are two very different cultures peter and cornelius coming into contact with one another and the key thing is that cornelius is described as fearing god and likewise peter fears god they do not fear man the the impressions now Peter will have his issues about fearing man a little bit later. But in this story, they are each much more concerned about what Almighty God thinks than what man thinks. And global Anglicanism is trying to be concerned about what God thinks. And the former hub of the wheel around which we were organized, either in Canterbury or New York in our case, became far too concerned about fearing man and completely unconcerned about fearing God. That's right. I think you're exactly right. And I, you know, I was just
0: thinking another, if you want to take a different tact, you could preach on the ramifications of remaining in fellowship with these quote unquote churches that have so clearly denied the word of God. And I was thinking of James chapter one, uh, beginning 14, where he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And I've always uh, thought that that progression was really very well. I've increasingly seen that progression take the form of uh, the world in our current cultural situation, where you see, you know, what Freud called the death instinct, but I think is more you sort of generally understand the the culture of death. You know, whether it's the climate fanaticism that wants to eradicate half the population, you know, like the um, Marvel Universe guy did, or whether it's the sacrament of abortion, or even if it's these non-procreative um, sexual deviancies, you know, like homosexuality and lesbianism, um, you have this all around us is the stench of death and the the results of sin. And in no small way, the, you know, sort of the Church of England and certainly the Episcopal Church and these these affiliated Anglican bodies that we're no longer connected to um, have embraced um, many of those aspects of the culture of death. You know, what what Philip Reith, you know, thanks to Carl Truman's introduction, calls the death work, you know, the sort of mockery of the very means and, and places of life that if we maintain fellowship uh, in a in a spiritual sense with with this type of evil, for lack of a better word, well, then we are imperiling our souls. And even the association, you know, we could say, and we've talked about this before, and we have said, at least you and I certainly have said longer than some, Nick, that, you know, well, we aren't being affected by it because we're not actually participating. So, um, and that was just a lie. I mean, it wasn't a lie. That was a mistake, as I could say, because... Because um, you know, spiritual official public spiritual association with otherwise apostate bodies can't can't do anything but but weaken you and drag you down. It's like a it's like the albatross you know around your neck, or the or um, like a like a slow drip poison, so, or
1: like a millstone hung around your. Or, neck. Yeah, just just someone, to choose a just to choose an illustration. <laughs> That's right.
0: Well, and I, um, you know, I mean, I think it's even most tragic, speaking of Millstone and a particular um, illustration Jesus uses with respect to young people, you think of the fact yeah. that these churches are actively advocating this transgender um, hysteria and, and supporting the mutilation of children and, and encouraging their parents as if this was some sort of new divine, you know, blessing. Uh, I mean, Church of England going so far as to have a renaming ceremonies for um you know at the very least it seems like in england they're not as far gone as we are because they shut down that tavistock center but at the very least you you look at you know associations with churches like that and you say this is This is what the culture of death would want to corrupt and co-opt. And this is, in fact, what's happened. And, you know, we see it all throughout the Old Testament, and particularly, you know, there there were priests that went rogue. There were times when Israel was just, you know, wantonly worshiping false gods and idols and things. So it's not, it's nothing new that churches uh, go off the rails, but it is, um, and it's also nothing new that people are call to repentance sackcloth and ashes uh even down to the nineveean animals you know because by the preaching of the law and i think that's what it means to be a global anglican again to your point nick is that people who have uh who are afraid of the right things and have been brought low by as intended by the law of god and know that they stand solely on his mercy and grace um and and that's that's a new day
2: for global anglicanism it's a little too far afield I've also been thinking about how how this how a global church like ours is uh, like I I I am not I'm I'm agnostic with regard to the the Christian nationalist argument. Uh, people who are against it, who are for it, I'm I just I, I don't I don't know. I haven't done all the reading. I've done all, I haven't done all the work. Um, but I remember one aspect of of you have uh, said
1: that you want a Christian king, though.
2: Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, um, uh,
1: we can uh, talk about
0: that. Arduous,
2: but but okay, but the but but part of I remember in Stephen Wolf's book, he was talking about he was redefining what ethne ethnic means, and he was saying it's not defined by skin color or ethnic ethnic background even; it's just by culture, right? Your your culture right. is your ethnic, and it, which I thought was a it was interesting, but I thought it was maybe that's that's where a lot of people just get hung up and they can't get past that that redefinition that he does. But I bring that up because I think, I, and here's where I probably disagree with him a little bit on on this. I think the church is intended to be the, the new ethnic. I agree, though. I mean, the, the church is supposed to be the place where people Gentiles like Cornelius, Jews like Peter, come in and and they they are brought, they're in, they're ushered into a new kingdom, a new people, a new ethnic group. Not ethnic exactly. in the sense of right, race, right. but in the sense of uh, of culture. And, and so Christian culture is supposed to be the thing that mm-hmm. uh, Leavens Levin's lump. I mean Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's, we're supposed
0: right. to be salt and light. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be. Uh no, I think you're exactly right, Matt. And I think that's a lot of where this Christian if we're talking about Christian nationalism, uh, breaks down in the uh discussion surrounding what would be called quote unquote whiteness you know, which is another way sort of ethnocentrism, I mean, um, European sort of ethnocentricity, uh, because in many ways, European is is a, simply a synonym for Christendom. I mean, you know, at least in a certain number of centuries. And so when you look at what a Christian culture gives, like, for instance, monogamy, you know, um, and, you know, what would be called patriarchy, which otherwise would be known as, you know, male headship in the family and so on and so forth. Of course, there were excesses all throughout history, but in general scope, there was a shared uh, Christian ethne um, that was s- spread around the world. You know, I mean, that was, and that's where that's where what's so interesting. This is what I was I was alluding to before. Is that if you're not a Christian you've never experienced sitting around a table with um, yeah. Christian Nigerians, mm-hmm. uh, Sri Lankans, Singaporeans, South Americans, and people from Idaho, and realizing that you share so much more in common, um, down to talking about your your children and your hope for their grandchildren, you know, things that you just take for granted in a Christian culture. You know, the fact that you assume that your, uh, you know, wives are off limits. You know, for instance, you assume that um, people are, are trying not to cheat or steal or murder, you know, and you you assume that they are racked with covetousness, but that's among, among one of the sins that they are constantly asking forgiveness and deliverance from. That will produce like-minded like similarly conformed people who you this know, is the oneness for which jesus prays that's right and this is the conformity of christ that paul talks about you know as you're conformed further into the likeness of christ and that also allows you to keep whatever cultural trappings um you know sort of na- national dress you'd like to wear like you know it's funny when we were in vienna um you know with the united nations there and we saw this firsthand because all of the various commonwealth nations you know had representation at the un and many of them were anglican christians you know so we had we had um on the pentecost we had you know people from like 17 different nations and languages get up in their in their national dress what we call it and they would read the gospel i mean this was this was one of the things you know churches do this um and it was funny because, you know, you had the Austrians in their, um, in their um, Yonker, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the boiled, the, the wool suits, you know, you had the Na- the Nigerians in their, their national dress, you had the, and all I could figure out wearing for us was like khaki pants and a blazer. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it was like, I was like, do I wear like the. I wear the the uh, the shorts from Rocky Four, you know, the Paul came out, and I'm not really sure. And a, an Adidas tracksuit. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what it would be now, juicy <laughs> couture tracksuit, and some Vans. Um, but I was struck by the fact that, like, there was absolutely no contradiction in all of this. Like, we had different food, different languages, different dress, different nations. You know, different different songs, different stories, different all sorts of of differences, and yet we were a hundred percent united by our shared love of Christ. And so that was a picture, when I think of calling all from all tongues, tribes, and nations, at the banquet, the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb, you know, I, I think of what we saw in Kigali. I think of what I experienced in Vienna. And of course you have experiences with that too, which allows me to simply dismiss out of hand this argument that we cannot be united in any meaningful way on the basis of superficialities like skin color or even or even upbringing and backgrounds and nations. You know, I mean, there are people out there who actually believe that, you know, someone that grew up in Africa and someone that grew up in Baton Rouge, like me, like could never meaningfully have a shared relationship. And that's just flatly rejected out of hand and is just pointed out as deeply unchristian. So that's what it means to be a global Anglican, <laughs> too. <laughs> Send my first
1: prize to this address, right? Right.
0: You can. <laughs> it, can they split the prize three ways? I any
1: final right. words? Yeah, they can. There's three prizes. In fact, we'll expect to submit this podcast for consideration and win all three of the prizes. And let's just say that if anybody does win a prize and quotes any of the illustrations we've used, any of the Bible passages we've referenced, we'll expect five to 10% of your winnings, or you'll be hearing from the Stand firm legal team. Right. <laughs> any any final words, you guys?
0: I would be interested to see what passes for a normal length sermon that's, that's submitted and then compare that to Matt Kennedy's uh, sermons and see what- It specifically
1: right. says no more than 2,500 words. That's
0: so,
2: right.
0: Matt well, that's Kennedy's right. introduction, yeah. That's what I, uh, that's right. And for my 19th point, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I just read about this. I was thinking of your church, Matt, because um, in I'm reading this book about the Puritans and Jamestown and uh, Cotton Mather and all these people, but there was a specific person, and I forgot what his, his name was, but it, it must have been a verger type in the Puritans that had a stick and walked around and rousted the people that were falling asleep during the sermons, but and you paid the guy to do it because you were so intent on being awake, even though sometimes the flesh doth faileth, you know, and so <laughs> I thought that was, <laughs> I was like, I bet I mean, we're just kidding. Matt does not preach too long. In fact, when he was in my church, everyone was very uh, edified by the sermons. It's, it is just a funny joke coming from. Amen and amen. Uh, but no, twenty five hundred. That's good. That's that's twenty five minutes for me right there. That's what I've timed. A hundred words. that I say, uh, I, it comes out. If I do twenty five hundred, that's that's ten pages and that's um twenty five minutes. So there we
1: go. Well, we'll look forward to winning the prize and lording it over everybody else in the ACNA. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the time that we have today. Uh, thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then. By the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm.